Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Jilla. I have a slight cold, as you might be able to hear, so do excuse my overtones there. And in this show, I am going to give you part two of my interviews from the recent KubeCon, the conference in Barcelona all about Kubernetes and uh, new models in cloud computing, hybrid cloud computing, etc., 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 etc. And then next week, we'll be back to a Lynx show back to the usual schedule. So on this show, first is an interview with the CEO of Solo.io, Edith Levine. Now this interview was an interesting one. I've left it fairly unedited, despite there being several points where she shows me things. And uh, the, the way we were talking was sometimes kind of odd for an interview, but she has such enthusiasm for what she's talking about and such love of her product. I kind of wanted to leave it as, as raw as possible so you could hear that, and hopefully you do. And hopefully it's not too hard for you to understand what's going on at times when she's showing me demos and things. But uh, her enthusiasm and passion comes through. My second interview is with Shif Ramji from DigitalOcean, uh, where we talk about DigitalOcean's uh, pushes into the Kubernetes space and what they're going to be offering in the very near future. And finally, on the next day, back in a different location, just before I left the lovely Barcelona, I had an interview with Matt Whittington of Atlassian. Now, Atlassian don't offer any Kubernetes services, but we talk about how they are using Kubernetes for their own products. So, enjoy. So my name is Edith Levine, and I'm the founder and the CEO of Solio. It's a company based in Boston area, and uh, we basically help enterprise to adopt open source uh, product by actually writing tools, not like services. So it's really cool. Okay, so what does that? Let's go into a bit more detail about what yeah. that means. Yeah, so I'll So basically, when I started a company, okay, so I worked in a lot of startup company before. Um, I worked in Dynamic Op, we got acquired by VMware. I, so we did cloud before cloud was cloud. I worked in in um, in cloud switch, we got acquired by Verizon, and I worked in even in EMC. It was the city of cloud management division. So we did really kind of like open source project and right. innovative. And what I noticed is that enterprise has a big problem and actually adopt it. So like if I'm putting any open source project out there, there's me and a few people kind of <laughs> surrounding it. But in the end of the day, the enterprise has a huge gap to actually adopt that technology. Mm-hmm. So when we started the company, that was kind of like the mission. We're going to bring them with us. We want to do innovation, but we ne- first need to close this gap before we actually innovate. So basically that's exactly what we did. Like we have line of product. Um, so we have basically, you know, what we notice is that every enterprise has today a problem to, you know, they, they all want to do a digital transformation, right? But what does it mean, right? So the first thing that I noticed that is the biggest problem is that they're trying to move from monolithic application to microservices. Okay, that's great. Then the other thing is that once they actually move to microservices, they have a new set of problems, mm-hmm. right? So a problem like, for instance, how do you, now it's all distributed. So how do you make one microservice talk to the other? Mm-hmm. How do you manage to make sure that they will do it securely? How do you make sure that you can see what's going on in this cluster right now, which is all distributed, the state is everywhere? Um, and all of those problems, these three problems, is being solved today by service mesh. So that's the second thing that they should adopt. Now, the technology of service mesh actually, you know, dealing with these three use cases, but actually the implementation itself is decoupling the 
logic, the business logic of the application from the operation. Before that, you needed to bake it inside your microservice. Now it's basically detach it and bring it to the sidecar. If that technology actually means that you obstruct your network, so there's way more we can help you with. Like, for instance, and I will show you some product, I can show you some, some, some stuff that we're working on, but for instance, we will be able to do more stuff related to the health of the application, for instance, debugging, troubleshooting, um, and a lot of other stuff that we can do on this because we abstract the network. So that's exactly what we did at a company. The first product that we put out there called Squad, a glue, G-L-O-O, glue, oh, okay, yep. like gluing those environment of the monolithic microservice and serverless. So it's an API gateway based on Envoy, mm -hmm. but it's by, and it's open source, but it's by far, in my opinion, the best. And the reason is because of its architecture and the fact that it's kind of like taking the first citizen about this gluing piece, which I think is very important because if you're going today to enterprise, they usually have more than one type of architecture. Mm -hmm. So that's the first one. The second one that we did, I didn't feel that it makes sense for me to do another service mesh. There is so many. So instead of that, what I did, I realized that they're going to be the problem next. And what is the next problem that's going to be? The next problem is going to be that um, you're going to have an organization that will be more than one instance of meshes. So it could be that you will have two instances of STL, but it's two instances, right? Or maybe one instance of STL and one in app mesh because you're running on AWS and you know it's free and integrated with everything there. You probably want to use it. So what we did, we basically came in an orchestration. We're calling it super glue. Mm -hmm. And what Superglue is doing is first, yeah, you get the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and basically what it's doing, it's, um, first of all, it's helping you very simply install. So it's like one line, Superglue, install, STO, namespace, edit, boom, it's working. Same thing with the console, right? And app mesh, everything. Then once you, now, if you already install, we're discovering it. So we know exactly what is the service mesh that you're using, what is the configuration that you gave him, and what services is running and serving this. So it's kind of like giving you a lot of visibility. And then once we're doing this, everything is basically very, it's a it's very simple. Instead of creating four different objects in STL in order to create, to define the retry, we just took it upside down. So now you're just saying, you know, we have a list of all the service mesh that we're actually managing. Then we can just say superglue, STL1, service one, retry. Now we're going to go and create all of this for you. So that's, that's one, number one. So what it's allowing you, because we've come with an API that it's very simple, for all the services mesh, you can sweep, right? You, can, you don't have to be locked to a provider. Who knows who will win? We don't know. So now it's basically giving you the ability to start, for instance, with LinkedIn and then swap it to STL when it's more mature. So that's giving you, this is a big use case that we're hearing from our customer. And the last thing that we did, we're basically giving you the ability to kind of like group them together and we flatten the networking. So basically we're creating one big mesh from instances of meshes. So we could say this app mesh instance and this on-prem STO, all of them are production and I want them to use these primitives. Mm -hmm. So that's basically what we did and that's what Superglue. Um, but as I said, and, and this is actually a real tight a big announcement that's going to be today in the conference, so I will, I will discuss that a little bit. Um, last week, we also announced something called Service Mesh Hub, mm -hmm. and this is basically the vision of Superglue. It's a platform in the end of the day, which is basically the ability to, you know, 
install a mesh, right? Which in one click. And then the ability to extend it because the beauty of kind of like coming with this API is that now everybody can build a this and it will work on every mesh. Mm -hmm. So we're basically um, creating this, uh, this ability in the service mesh app is basically, you know, you can install and then the community can put a lot of extension. We put some for ourselves, for debugging and for the others. And again, I can talk a little bit more about that. And then basically you can just, like an iPhone, click and extend mm -hmm. and now it's working. And it's smart because you understand the mesh so you can actually make sure that it's configured well. You don't need to do anything because we know which primitives you're using. So when you're installing something like Flagger, just going to work, you know? So that's that. Now, we're actually very lucky, but we managed to convince Microsoft <laughs> that that's a good vision. So today, the big announcement on, um, on the keynote of Microsoft is basically that. So basically what we took, Superglue is doing a lot of stuff, but one of the things that he's doing is also the translation to the mesh. So basically, Microsoft uh, with us, and Voyant, and Ashikop took this API and basically took it out from Supergroup. And now basically what we're doing is we managed to make the provider themselves do this translation, which is better for us, right? Because I want to build on top of the mesh. So now basically what will happen, Ashikop built this adapter from, for, for the, we call it the SMI, Service Mesh Interface. So this API. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we wanted to give to the CNCF eventually. And we want the community to help us build it. And that should be owned by us. Mm -hmm. So I'm totally, you know, mm -hmm. I was totally pushing it. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, the beautiful of it is that the launch partner is us, Ashikop, Boyant, and, um, and Microsoft. But besides that, we already convinced quite a lot of companies like VMware, like, uh, like uh, well, it's like, uh, um, Rancher, Docker, F5, Reddit. So all of them are very basically buying into this, okay. which is couldn't be better for us as a startup company who came with this a, this a, a year ago, right? It, it can't be better. So, and the beautiful of it is that we are the only one who have actually the implementation. It's open source. So it's, you know, I mean, really, it's really exciting. So we're going to launch today. That launch will see a huge shout out for us. And, um, and what we want to do is, okay, so we're using SMI and we're basically having this really easy kind of like experience that we only have to actually manage multi-meshes, mm -hmm. which I believe will happen. And again, it could be two instances of STO. It's pretty simple, right? But you still need to manage them both. And then what we're doing next is we're leveraging the, we have a lot of product that basically leveraging the fact that you're running on top of the mesh. So we have something that we're coming right now, we're actually building it with Lyft. Mm -hmm. What it is, is basically... Then Lyft the... The company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And basically what we're doing, so Lyft is the one who came with Envoy, right? Mm -hmm. So they're running Envoy internally. And what we're doing is that we basically, because the mesh is obstruct the network, we actually request, we recording every request that's coming to your cluster, right? going through all those microservices. Now in the end of the request, if, so, if everything going well, we're not even saving it, we're just toasting it. It's never left the, 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 the container. But if there is a problem, we're saving it, the header and the body, and we're basically letting you replay the production code. Now think about it. The way the service mesh is working is that when someone is going to actually make a call to, a, to, to database, it's going through this sidecar. So we're recording even the response and the request for the database, for the S3, for everything, for the storage, for everything that's happening. Which means that then, the only thing we're doing is spinning this environment in your local environment or your stadium. And then we just, at 
touching debugger that we have called Squash, who is distributed debugger that you cannot touch. It's really cool, I will show you that one. And then basically we're just injecting. So yeah. now basically you can reply every production card on your pre on on, on your so record. It's kind of like um, a little bit like the sort of event sourcing model where you have the replayability to yes yeah exactly. But you can debug it, and you know if you yeah. think about it, is people really care about all the logs? Maybe for it, but in the end of the day, do I really care about the good ones? No. And that's giving you a problem because then it's a big, big data problem. You have yeah. a lot of logs, so you need to sample them and Depen it's a mess. De depends if uh, your good logs are actually good or not. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So for us, yeah, yeah, for us, it's great. So I mean, really excited about this announcement today. I think that will be big time. I mean, we have a lot of open source projects. We're getting tons of respect from the community, from the big companies. We're partnering with Google, we're partnering with Microsoft, we're partnering with Ashi, Boyan, uh, with uh, Reddit, with, uh, with AWS. They'll partner with us, so it's like, yeah, couldn't um, be better. You kind of you had a lot of uh, mentions in there of things just working and stuff, which we know in reality is not necessarily always going to be the case, right? So I, I guess the I think I feel like the an important question here would be how configurable is everything there? Like you say, there's a lot of kind of. Um, stuff that happens for you, but yes. how much of that can you control and change? Yes, so so we, I mean, we, we are very savvy engineers, so what we're making sure is that everything will be configurable, everything is pluggable, everything is interface. So for instance, just take an example for loop. In the end of the day, the big question in loop is, what is a bad request? Mm. How do you know when something is bad? So that's configurable, and this is a language that we're creating, and the user itself should tell me what is, big, what is wrong, right? Like, I mean, I, if the request is, you know, whatever, we got 500 and it's coming from this user. I mean, Lyft actually using it is totally is a different different use case. They actually wanted to make sure that if someone calling them and said, oh, my Lyft is not here, they will be able to, in the support system, click and record everything that related to this specific user. Mm -hmm. so, so that's that. In terms of the service mesh, um, so we actually pretty good at that. So we, we this layer that we talked about it is a little bit more opinionated because we want to do the common functionality. There is a lot of edge case that most of the people don't using, and it's overcomplicated stuff. But what we did, we basically we specifically only super glue. It's not it's not the, the SMI piece. What we're doing, we're basically drifting it. So we're basically saying, look, this is the basic configuration. But if you actually want, like we're going to give that, but if you actually want to do something that is edge case in STL, for instance, go do it in STL, and we're not going to override it. We're basically going to merge it with our change and serve it to, to STL. So I think that basically we're giving you ability to do everything eventually, just in an easier, easier way. So this is basically the what we're calling a, a service mesh app. This is mm -hmm. the one. It's built on top of a, of STL. Oh, sorry, of a super glue. But mm -hmm. you can see it's pretty simple. You're coming, you have, don't have mesh. But you can just click STL, write the name of the STL, the namespace, where do you want to install? You're clicking. This is actually not added, so it will take a second until we actually install it. Not too much, though. And what you can see in a second, so you can add now a new one. And you will see in a second... It's pending, sorry about that, I should have edited it. This is just not the edited version. And what you can see, this is the extension that I was mm -hmm. talking about it. So you basically just use a marketplace, right? And now what you can see, you see it's already almost discovered. You see the, you see the service is going up? Mm -hmm. So it's discovering all the services in the mesh. Now it's becoming green, which means that it's healthy, it's already installed. Now we can go and basically install an extension. It's like the Android, whatever, every other mesh. Right, you basically choose one. This is Flagger, it's coming from WeWork. Yep, yep. And basically it's just coming, installing it. 
start extension in a second you will see that it's you could all do this with config files if you wanted as well yes or, yes, yeah. yes 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 definitely yeah. or a cli yeah and you yeah. see this overwrite yeah. is that if you want to override okay. the symbol configuration yeah. Yeah. we created the layers there so now you see it's almost green when it will be green it will be good and now you can do exactly the same thing with every mesh that you want to do it um you see how simple it is it's mm -hmm. just like really really simple uh you see in a second it will work just waiting for it to get green here you go it's green right mm -hmm. so it's already installed so we have stl with flagger a few seconds you saw right the user doesn't need to edit the yaml because there is a yaml, yaml yep. kind of thing yep. and now you can go and do exactly with the stl so this is kind of like number one um and you can curate the same thing that they can do right now yeah it's basically the same yeah. thing and you can install something else yeah. and you have the mesh so so that's number one and then i can continue showing you that the other thing is that um i can show you a quick demo of squash if you want which is pretty cool you want to see something cool okay no <laughs> uh, i really like this demo this demo that basically people say shit this is huge we're just waiting for this mm -hmm. to terminate. It's all in AWS East, so it's a little bit, a little bit slow. And then we're on conference Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it will work. I'm pretty sure it should work in a second. If not, I will help him work. Oh, yeah, it is. See? <laughs> yeah, if not, I will help him. Don't worry. I can be aggressive about making it work. But if we're still waiting for the function, and then we'll be already. If it's already working, I will just kill it. Um, can I show you something between? So yeah, so basically, I'm, I mean, I'm just going to show you quick, quick kind of like, yeah, so in the end of the day, this is kind of like what's the super glue version, right? Yeah. Basically, you have all those meshes, we're going to put the layer on top of it, and then we can just plug in stuff. This is like some of the stuff that we know. No, oh, come on, buddy, wake up. I think it's almost there. Yeah, now it's loading it, so now it's just starting. Now in a second, you will see. You'll see it's starting. It's just I'm giving him a little bit to make sure that everything is killed before mm -hmm. I'm actually okay. Now it's starting. You see? Um, oh, no, no, I did it. Oops. Great. Okay. So in a second, now we're just waiting for the browser to start and we are set. Okay, so it's pretty simple demo, okay? And it's not related to service mesh. It's actually operate for every tool for mm -hmm, mm -hmm. developer. Okay, so look at this. This is a very simple application. It's a calculator. I can mm -hmm. cut to a number, it doesn't really matter which. And I can call in calculator, it's not working. See? Yep. I don't know. So what usually developer is doing? I will tell you what they're doing. They're not debugging, they're troubleshooting. Because yep. you can't debug anymore. You yep. don't have debugger, this, this, everything is spread. So we thought we can do better. So here's what we did. This microservice is built for two, this application built for two microservices. Mm -hmm. This is the first one. Mm -hmm. And basically this is a Go microservice. Mm -hmm. It's very simple. It basically serves the HTML. And once it's actually getting the two parameter, it's sending it to this Java microservice mm -hmm. that I just collapsed. Yeah. Java microservice that getting an either add or subtract yep. and return the result here. Now this is Java and it's in IntelliJ. Yep. And this is Go and this one is in Visual Studio Code. Yep. Just to show you that we can. So here's what we did. We basically created an extension. You can write squash and you're getting command. Mm -hmm. Squash debug container. So now immediately it's going and showing you all the services that you can see in your class, all the pod that you can see in your cluster that mm -hmm. you can see. You have the permission. So we'll go with example service one because this is service one. So now they said, look, in this pod you have one container, do you want to debug it? The answer is yes. And then we said, which debugger do you want to attach to it? Now this is go, let's go with DLV. Mm -hmm. And that's it, basically, it's attached to the debugger. Now we will do exactly the same thing here. Okay, I'm going to go squash, here we go, debug container. Now we choose the second one, the service mm -hmm. mesh two. 
the, then service to Java and Java debugger. So attach the Go debugger here, the Java debugger here. It's all running on AWS in Istio. Mm -hmm. And now the only thing that I need to do, let's debug it again. Boom. Here's the 99, 22. Mm -hmm. I can actually step into. Now, when I'm doing next, what will happen? I'm going to jump to the Java. Right? It's pretty cool. And now you can actually go and you can see all this parameter that we have make it bigger. So this is 99. It's mm -hmm. good. Let's continue. I guess what we can see is that all the parameter is good. Oops, equal 91, that's 22, that's true. But here's what I did. I introduced the bug here. I said, if it's true, mm. I want you to do minus. But this is a debugger, so let's just change it in runtime to false and see if it will fix the problem. So I'm doing this. I'm doing next. What will happen? So we'll jump back to here. Mm. Right? And then what I will do next? Let's fix the problem. Now I know that this is how to do it. We're debugging all of my all application mm -hmm. that we're building with this. But this is probably one of the usages like we build it for ourselves and then that's why we open source mm -hmm. it. It's open source and this is like And you built all the tooling for the IDEs every, as well? Everything, yeah. 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 And that works. I mean, um, you can go just to yeah. yeah. You can go to squash. So here's the day. You can see everything that we support. It's yeah. all open source. You can go to yeah. the GitHub repo. Oh. It's like it's all open source. It's all ready to go. You can see there's everything here. People watching. People all starring. Yeah. There's quite a lot of excitement about that. You can also like we have a Slack channel, <laughs> so you can see in our Slack channels that. Uh, Slow, slow. Yeah. Oh, the network here is not great. Huh? Well, that still works. Yeah. So this, it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. This is quite, you see. So, like, there's a huge community asking questions, yeah. asking, and we helping them. Wow. People are actually yeah. using that a lot. And as I said, with Loop, we're actually doing it even cooler because we're actually taking a production one and then we're spinning it up locally yeah, with Squash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we have that. I show you the the marketplace, which I think it's cooler. So yeah, Loop no, no, is no. going to be one extension that you can actually click okay. and download, okay. and that's it. It's going to work. You don't need to do anything. Now you can. You see the overwrite. You can if you want, because what we created and what we're coming with right now, it's pretty cool. Now there's a lot of problems to solve in service mesh that people overlook. For instance, today when I'm actually, I put service mesh right. I'm starting the configuration from zero. That's where people actually have the trouble. Mm. What we did is we basically layered this configuration. Mm. So now what we can do, we can actually, which I feel really cool, what we're doing is we basically um, layer that and then letting you to do what, what Docker is doing, mm. basically start from 80%. Mm. So we're basically sharing configuration. The community can share configuration. And now you can say, I want this configuration. And now 80% is already configured. Now I just need to tweak it the way I want it. So that makes people so easy. So imagine in my app, in the the, the app spot that we are, the the service mesh app. So this is like the the online version, but I show you it's a recorded demo. So you can see here I have three meshes, right? And you see I have you know a few version of stuff extension here and so on. And what's special about that is that you can click here, install mesh or discover mesh. Then you can do an extension. Then you will be able to say, I want this configuration. And boom, it's working. Really click, right? So that's pretty awesome in my opinion. So what, that's what we're working on. We're going to make these things is so usable and easy. And we are like, look, we're partnering with all these companies. We're going to have a big announcement with Docker, with Google, big announcement with Microsoft today and the keynote. Um, we're working with all those groups. So it's going to be really, I'm very excited about what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and we build internally, like I mean, and the company itself. Um, 
I'm an engineer in my heart. This yep. is what yep. I'm doing, as you can yep. see. Yep. Uh, so I'm very careful about the technology. It's not yep. about making money here. It's really, I want to push this ecosystem. And, um, and so we are building a lot of tools internally, and we're working so efficient. Like, it's unbelievable. You look at our code, it's so solid. It's like, <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, so our purpose is just helping. We, we you just say so yourself. Yeah. No, you can look. It's open source. That's the beauty of it. I, I don't know. know Go that well. But uh, yeah, sure. yeah but no, but people can see, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah. um, I think I think that the respect that we're getting. One of the things, for instance, like Glue itself. So you know, like K Native. Do you know what it yeah, is? Yeah. yeah. So when K Native got out, it was depends in in a STL, yeah. and the community put put the push pushback because it was like, well, you know, it's really a big machine yeah. for no good reason using very simple time. So they basically reached out to us and said, look, guys, we chose you. We want an alternative for STL if someone want to run simple stuff. And right now, if you're going, you know, just to K Native. Docs. Let's go together. Knative doc online. Oops. And then you're doing documents. What you can see is that if you go in the installation, the option is either Knative or Glue. So Google evaluate our code and decided to go with us. So this is, you know, this is like a good, good. I believe that that's make it good, if you know what I mean. No, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So, so it's pretty good. I think that it's going pretty good for us. Yeah, so Shiva Ramji, and I'm the SVP of products uh, at DigitalOcean, and um, my focus area is really building out the product strategy for the company, and then obviously leading all of the execution, uh, ultimately with the goal of making sure that the products we build for our customers uh, or developers are products that hold the essence of what has made DigitalOcean special and, and unique, and uh, so things like uh, simplicity of the product and the pricing and the packaging continue to build um, and uh, maintain a, a healthy community uh, via the products and content that we that we put out and then um, also tied to providing uh, to the degree that we can free support for most of our customers and um, and then you know because we're at kubecon you know sort of building on uh, open source technologies but also making open source technologies um, uh, consumable. So that's sort of my uh, my focus area, and I've been with the company a little over two years now. Um, so took over from one of the founders who was a chief product officer, um, and sort of have been leading the the product and technology vision uh, forward. Just uh, we'll go back one step just to clarify some things from what you said there. Is DigitalOcean's relationship with Kubernetes, do you allow people to deploy Kubernetes or are you built on Kubernetes or a bit of both? I wasn't 100% sure there. Yeah, that's a good question. So it's actually both. Uh, we adopted Kubernetes uh, uh, pretty early on. So we've been uh, running Kubernetes uh, in production uh, internally uh, for about three, uh, actually four years now. So, uh, so our internal control plane that manages our entire cloud infrastructure is built on Kubernetes. So we've, we've been using Kubernetes and, and related technologies like Prometheus, Grafana, gRPC um, uh, internally for a very long time. And um, so that's great. It has allowed us to scale massively to, into a global cloud provider. 
And then now, as of today, um, we put our managed uh, Kubernetes product out into GA. So this is where we take all the management uh, of you know operating the cluster and uh, maintaining the cluster, and then we give that we basically sell that managed service uh, to to our customers. So we we do both, but we started being an internal customer first, and now we're bringing all the expertise and knowledge to to our customers. I'm going to go back another step now. So you mentioned the infamous simplicity of DigitalOcean, and this was where a lot of people encountered you in the past. I know that's where I encountered you, basically installing and deploying an application. Uh, in the days I used to use DigitalOcean a lot, I actually used to do a lot with Drupal, um, LAMP stacks, that kind of thing. Uh, and that was always why I would like using DigitalOcean, because one not one click, but some configuration and one click and you pretty much had something and then it was quite easy to get rid of it and etc etc when you were just experimenting kubernetes is pretty different beast so how did you combine that simplicity you're known for with something that's pretty complicated and usually being used for fairly complicated use cases as well yeah, so so uh, <clears throat> I'll answer the Kubernetes question, but just give me, let me maybe take a step back and give you the, you know, we were known as the droplet, $5 droplet yeah, yeah. company, really, if you think about it, right? If you go back, most most people who will come to say, yeah, I am aware of your of the $5 droplet. So what we did was we we created a, a ex- developer experience around uh, launching, building, uh, you know, serve virtual servers, fun, easy, and exciting. And the reason why we did that was we kept the product generally, from a usability perspective, very easy to use and and simple, right? Uh, but not without losing the power and configurability, right? So we we didn't lose that. And the other part of the mix was getting the pricing and packaging right. And so when you are a hobbyist developer uh, or a student developer or somebody who just wants to have a blog or try something out, the last thing you need is variable pricing like you would get at AWS, right, where you don't know if you're going to pay $8 this month or $14. So we started on a very simple idea, which is let's give this experience with predictable pricing, so nice round numbers in five dollars, ten, fifteen, so on and so forth, and and that has been great. Uh, still a big part of our core business, but in the last two years, we've built out a lot of other features. And the idea being that uh, we want to be a place where an application developer or a business or a startup can host their entire stack. So a lot of our customers would say, you know, can we have different droplet types? We want managed databases, so we introduce managed databases. We would like object storage, we would different storage options in block. So over the last years, you know, progressively we've been adding those additional capabilities. But in every single one of those, what's core is, uh, you know, these four things, which is the product has to be simple and easy to use. Um, make sure the pricing and packaging has predictability and can scale as you grow. We build a lot of content with a lot of these new products also. And again, embracing open source. So everything that we put out, you know, is basically uh, a nice usability layer on top of um, on top of open source. Now, if you extend that to Kubernetes, very very similar. Um, the experience we've delivered today is focused on the there are two personas here, right? Which is a cluster operator and an application developer. Our experience today addresses a cluster operator. 
But even there, we've tried to make the experience very simple. So you log in, get to your create page, and go ahead and um, uh, select your cluster type or, or nodes, and uh, you hit create, and we give you the cube config, and you're off. Um, you know, with with having your cluster up and running. And so, um, so you've made it really, really easy for very, very specific use cases. Now, when you think about the application developer persona, prob- you know, if they were to use our product right now, they would not find it easy to use, simply because that's sort of something we're going to address later on our roadmap is to make it easy for an application developer um, to use uh, Kubernetes also. And so, so again, we've applied the same formula for the most part um, to the Kubernetes experience. And um, so far, we've gotten reviews, um, you know, unprompted, obviously. Uh, I think just a few months back, Kelsey Hightower was reviewing every <laughs> managed Kubernetes service. And, and his... A Docker a few years oh, ago. <laughs> oh, you did for Docker, yeah. So, uh, and, you know, his comments were, you know, this is a very simple, easy experience and gets you up and running within minutes with your main Kubernetes cluster needs. Um, now, Kubernetes is complicated, and there is a more complexity as you grow in scale. And so, you know, in the future, we have we have to address this application developer persona, and then we're also leveraging our marketplace of one-click apps, which we have extended. We now have up to sixty one-click apps since the launch in March. Um, you know, in about a month or two, we're going to introduce a beta, where post-cluster um, creation, you can add additional capabilities. So it could be observability, it could be service meshes. So we're also trying to solve that problem uh, to make it super, super easy for a developer uh, to get going. And so building very specific guided experiences as opposed to, well, here's your create page and you can do a thousand things. Uh, we're trying to guide developers on that journey. I guess kind of like a, a droplet of droplets almost. <laughs> a dro- yeah, I mean, to a cer- yeah, to a certain degree, um, you know, the way we think about it is if we can make the experience easy at first, uh, you can go to our tutorials. So you can do it yourself via the tutorials. And then over time, we really automate everything we 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 taught you or guided you in our in our tutorials. So that's that's our approach. Is we'll put out a lot of learning content and do it yourself, very specific instructional uh, content, and uh, so that you can get going. Um, but then, when you you know over time, we will also automate a lot of those experiences, so you don't have to uh, you don't have to figure this out and. And today, by the way, if you want to have your own Kubernetes service on our compute or droplets, you can. And we have customers who will do it themselves. Um, so you're not sort of forced to use our managed Kubernetes service. But chances are, if you if you are going to use managed Kubernetes, you might as well get the managed service. Um. So actually touching on something you just said there, another thing that uh, DigitalOcean is fairly famous for is the tutorial content as well. Often, second to Stack Overflow, you'll find DigitalOcean resources, especially for specific subjects. Not for everything, of course, but um, when when it comes to a new technology to you, like Kubernetes, for example, I mean, a do you how do you go about building out to make sure that when people are looking, they find your blog, and then that hopefully leads to customers. I mean, I understand how it works. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess the second question to that is, 
when you entered that kind of digital marketing, technical marketing space many years ago, you're one of the first to do it. Now there's a lot of people doing it. So how have you managed to maintain that when you come out with a new technology, you still rank high when people are looking? <laughs> yeah, I think, um, well, the, you, to, to answer the question of sort of how do you keep up with um, you know, being relevant with content, I think there are two things. One, we rarely focus on um, quantity. We really focus on quality. So there, there are a few things about documentation or tutorials is that if they're stale, nobody's going to use them. So, you know, we only have a library of 2,300 tutorials. It's not thousands and thousands of tutorials. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it feels that way, right? But but it's it's a small set and, and we maniacally focus on keeping them current, right? And because anytime you do a search result, you land on a tutorial and if it gives and if it doesn't solve the need for the developer, that's that's a bad experience, they will never come back. So we can never lose that trust. So we keep the library small, keep it uh, fresh. And then anytime we're launching new technologies, there's a good chance we have some content. So for instance, before launching our Kubernetes service, we actually had quite a few articles around microservices, Kubernetes, CI, CD. And um, those were good seeds we had planted early on. And um, so, and, and before launch, obviously, we wanted to add more. So we've, we've now built out a whole learning center. If you go to our Kubernetes page, the product page, there's a whole learning center that gives you a whole host of guides based on the scale and stage um, that you are. And we're also making investments in the whole tutorial experience itself. So making sure there are learning paths um, in the experience built, uh, making sure we can build in you know, the level of expertise or experience. And then recently we launched a Q&A uh, a portion of the community site where you know, the community is helping themselves. So people will post questions, you know, community uh, folks will answer them or we will answer them depending on... On, on who has the, the most current information. And so that has been a really positive way to continue to nurture um, sort of uh, the engagement of the community in the, in the tutorials we publish. And that continues to feed, obviously, our ranking in search engine, um, you know, for search engines. Um, so it's been, it's been easy because we have this foundation. It's been easy to add to it. Um, but we're not resting. I mean, we have a lot of work to do in the, in the tutorial experience. And, and as you know, learning Kubernetes is just very complex. And I think there are some additional opportunities for us to, to bring um, uh, either interactive learning uh, to, the, to the mix too. I'd like to ask one more question in this area just because I do technical writing. So you've always been one of these sites that's been interesting. But I know, like, whilst it's obviously, skeptically speaking, it's also a good source of potential customers as well as being a useful resource. Um, uh, you know, not, not everybody who comes and reads a tutorial is going to go and sign up and be a customer. In fact, probably a fairly small percentage. So how, I guess, how do you sort of make sure it's not, you're not sinking too much time and effort into it and that um, it doesn't become too much of a distraction and you become a, you know, a content platform <laughs> too much. That it, is, it obviously helps you get customers, but you don't want it to, it's not your core business. How do you keep that balance uh, maintained? Um, actually, I'm going I'm to be very controversial and very uh, different here, which is um, this is our core business. And the core business is the reason why developers love us is because 
there is a part of the equation where we're giving. And what are we giving? We're giving the best tutorial uh, tutorials you can find on the web around open source. So yes, we may benefit from that. You are right. Like there's a lot of people who use our tutorials aren't building on DigitalOcean. They may be building on AWS, and actually they will tweet that very common in, in social channels and say, you know, I'm I'm building for my for my business on on AWS, but I actually go read DigitalOcean articles. So part of uh, building a develop, developer brand or a brand that's loved by developers, you have to be authentic, you have to be transparent. And we're very transparent that we're building tutorials around, uh, the core of what we have is around open source technologies. And you can consume that on your own Linux box at home. You can certainly do it on DigitalOcean. And why not on any other cloud platform? Like that, that we tend to be, we are agnostic from, you know, we try to maintain this healthy balance where we're not forcing the reader to say, well, great, now that you read this, now go fire up the Kubernetes cluster and go do it there. Now, we may in the sense of like, hey, do you want to try this out? Do you know you can do this on DigitalOcean? I think that's helpful. And I think this is a big part of the developer mindset is that we want to provide things that are helping them, uh, not, not, hey, you know, sign up for an account and, and selling. And if we have helped them in their journey of learning, launching, or leveling up, they will naturally come to us to use. And we also have to earn this by delivering a product experience, obviously. And I think the combination of that um, is pretty good. So uh, if we could invest more, and we do, uh, put more uh, community articles and content out, we, we, will, we will continue doing that. That's, a, that's part of the DNA, and, uh, and we think it's important to, to keep doing that. And so, um, so yeah, if we, you know, more investments are good in that area. <laughs> a very diplomatic answer. <laughs> so we're obviously here at KubeCon. We've spoken a little bit about the offering. Uh, I think you said it was pretty new. So is that what you're here to promote, or is there something in addition to what you had before that you're here to promote? Yeah, I think the core of what we're promoting today is uh, the managed um, Kubernetes service. So we were limited availability uh, in December at the last KubeCon in Seattle. And then uh, today it's generally available with some additional features um, and in available in all of the regions um, that we operate in. And then the other part that, you know, we it's not necessarily part of uh, today's announcement, but we're also, you know, I mentioned this concept of uh, a, a tighter integration of our marketplace with managed Kubernetes. So we're working with a lot of partners here, meeting with a lot of partners um, uh, at KubeCon to essentially bring their products and services into the, into the, 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 in, into the clusters that customers are, are building. So that will most likely go into beta in the next few months. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of partners here who are, who are excited to be part of the marketplace experience because, they, you know, you get to half, a, you know, we have a half a million active accounts on our platform. And, um, and you know, it's not enterprises. So it's this develop, it's this audience that's not served today with, with a lot of um, companies and focus here. And so I think it's, it's, a, it's a really nice uh, partnership um, uh, experience that benefits both uh, somebody who's a vendor or an open source project that's building something new and putting it out to, to uh, you know, individual developers, SMBs and, and startups. So, so that will be, uh, we're going to beta soon and, and we hope to make uh, additional announcements once, once that's further along. 
so actually, uh, something that, um, like, like to me, as I said, when I first encountered DigitalOcean, you were kind of the go-to place for someone wanting to do a lamp stack or a. Um, can't even remember what a map set. I can't even remember what half of them were anymore because it's such a long time ago. Because you know you offered that simplicity with a proper server that people could use. But and now you're we're fast forward a few years and you have a limited engineering and support team. Of course, when when do you decide if you do that an application that you used to support is now not really worth supporting anymore and is worth sort of switching off <laughs> and retiring. Yeah, so um, there are a couple of trends that we that we look at. So in general, you know, if you look at big um, technology trends, uh, especially in this space, is that usually uh, it takes about roughly about six to seven years for some sort of seismic shift to happen. So let's take the, the shift from VMs to containers. Um, you know, uh, we've been talking about containers for a very long time, if you think about it, right? But just, it was either last year or the year before when, you know, Kubernetes became the de facto orchestration standard, and now there is a whole ecosystem around it. And so we're constantly watching those types of trends. And, I, you know, we're about to enter another shift with serverless, right, frameworks that are coming up and functions. So, so that's something we obviously are monitoring. But but usually, a lot of these technologies have a lot of hype initially, so we try to uh, ride out the hype period uh, and introduce them when we think they. Uh, and you know, we are fairly open with the developer community. So if, if there is something that that's taking that is getting traction, they will they will tweet us, they'll post on our ideas board, and um, and that's sort of how we may accelerate um, some of these technologies. So so that's generally and and then we also look at. Netcraft data, which you know, if it's funny, everybody talks about you know these newer stacks like Jamstack and serverless and functions. But if you look at Lamp and Mean stacks in terms of public posts, and the, they are still pretty huge. They're not. still runs on WordPress. Yeah, you know, it's still you know. So these numbers are huge, and so um, I, you know, I'm sure there are technologies that w- that will get will be sunset. But again, it really depends. Uh, as far as I know, like if you're a startup founder or an entrepreneur who's trying to build a business, you don't start with like, I'm building a new business and I need Kubernetes. Said no founder ever, unless you're building developer tools, <laughs> right? So, so most of the time it's like, I have an idea, I have a small team, I'm trying to get my application out uh, quickly. And most of the times they will start with a monolithic application because it's the easiest, cheapest way to get it done. Really, that's really it. And you have a lot of developers who you can find for LAMP, mean, stacks today. And then um, as they grow in scale, then, of course, they will they will uh, adopt and, and change their architecture. So, so for us, it's a balance because uh, you don't want to alienate somebody who has a single-page monolithic app uh, who will be fine with the basic building blocks that we have. And we also need to cater to a developer who's learning new technologies or a newer technology company who wants to scale fast and Kubernetes is the perfect solution for them. So that's sort of how we uh, how we make these decisions. What's mean? I can't even remember. <laughs> um, mean is, uh, so it's Angular, uh, Node, uh, Mongo, and uh, yeah, I think so. mean is skipping me. 
Anyway, anyway <laughs> that's how important it is. <laughs> so, okay, so what's, what's uh, as much as you want to reveal, what's on the roadmap for the next six months? Yeah, so we think, uh, well, let's start with, with Kubernetes because that's sort of the, the focus of what we're talking about today. So we are building additional features such as, um, you know, having a private container registry, um, better integrations with third parties via, via the marketplace, um, and some additional features that make it easy for you to do a major or minor upgrades um, on your cluster. And then uh, we will also start introducing uh, an experience that's focused on application developers. So moving from cluster operator to application developers. So the general idea being that all we want a developer to do is um, uh, take their code, whether it's on their laptop, in the local environment, or in the Git repo, and deploy it as fast as possible. And we think we can do it within four or five steps without anybody actually having to understand or deploy a Kubernetes cluster. So that's sort of our, our long-term vision, and we'll start deploying some of that shortly. We're also adding new database engines. So we recently launched managed databases just about a week and a half ago uh, with Postgres uh, support. Uh, we have plans to add MySQL, which is a popular engine, and we will be adding um, uh, Redis and so we have a few open source database engines that, that are on the roadmap that we will deliver this year. And then um, we also have lots of requests for GPUs, so yeah. GPU droplets, uh, especially you know, AI, ML-focused companies are requesting that. So that's something that we are, we're thinking in a 6 to 12-month horizon uh, to add to the platform. And, um, and then we'll add you know, platform as a service, like more managed service features uh, to make it easy for developers to, to, um, to really focus on their applications and less so about configuring um, their infrastructure. So things like static site support deployment would be, especially for a front-end, you know, a lot of front-end use cases, you really don't need an entire server. You can just get um, so that's uh, also in focus over six to twelve month uh, horizon. And I think the final question, a little bit of a silly one to end on: When the founders chose the name, did they realize Kubernetes would become so popular, and you had instant naval water themes without even planning? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, it is. It is kind of funny. Uh, I don't think the founders ever thought this would happen, but um, but, I, but the story about the name is obviously it was named after one of the famous paintings uh, in in Tokyo. Tokyo, which is a wave of uh, Kanagawa, which oh, is a famous painting. And so they were fans of that, and they said, let's come up with a name that incorporates this. And that's that's how <laughs> DigitalOcean was born. And then obviously we were lucky. We have a mascot in Sami and, you know, everything with Helm and Kubernetes just fits fits perfectly. So, uh, yeah, you know, this is just coincidence, but it's a good one because we like it and it fits really well with the, <laughs> with the conference. I'm, my, my name is Matthew Whittington. Uh, I work at Atlassian on the Kubernetes team. Um, so my team is responsible for running uh, a whole bunch of Kubernetes clusters that run internal um, and some external workloads for uh, Atlassian. So the main workloads we've run are to do with uh, builds at the moment. We run uh, all of our internal CI/CD pipelines, the things that build Confluence and Jira and all of our products uh, on top of Kubernetes. Um, and we also run Bitbucket pipelines builds for external customers on our, our Kubernetes clusters. 
I guess that was going to be my first question, is it's not something you offer to people explicitly, but you do partially through the through the Bitbucket pipelines then. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so... Yeah, we're not in in running sort of a managed Kubernetes solution or anything. We're not we're not trying to be a, a public pass or something like that. Um, Atlassian's still all about selling, uh, you know, Jira, Confluence. Uh, those are our main products. Um, and yeah, I guess that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> well, no, no, I'm not the business of a pass. <laughs> I was I was wondering. <laughs> it didn't seem that obvious. I mean, you have Bitbucket, but. Um, and there are some hosting, sorry, some code hosting providers who do have kind of pipeline tooling of some description. But yeah, fair enough. Um, I, you know, that seems been around for a little while. I'm guessing you haven't always used um, Kubernetes. So um, when did you switch, and and why, and how fraught was the effort? <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So that's an interesting question. Um, I guess I'll go back in time a little bit and talk about our original uh, cloud offering. So uh, originally. We we have a, had a platform called On Demand, uh, Lassian On Demand, and that ran Confluence and Jira, um, and I think Bamboo at one point, in the cloud for people. Um, this was sort of five or six years ago. This was the sort of main um, way you could get our products on the cloud. Uh, and then we've since, uh, at, at that point, we were running on-prem. So we had a whole bunch of uh, racks in a bunch of data centers in the US, um, East and West Coast. And on those, we were, like, I was on the team that managed um, those, like the infrastructure that we used to to host all of those. And we were doing that ourselves, hand-rolled. Kubernetes didn't exist at this point. Um, it was, uh, so I started on the team, for, for reference, I started four years ago um, as a grad. So this platform was already well built before I arrived and it was running pretty well. Um, and so, yeah, when I jumped in, we were managing a lot of these um, servers. We were, more and more people wanted these uh, cloud offerings. So we were sort of having to go out and do data center trips um, more and more frequently to build out more capacity. Uh, and so at one point, the company as a whole decided to move to AWS. Um, and so there was a big shift to try and get off running these containers on um, on the on-prem stuff and put it push it up to AWS. But that required a lot of re-architecting. So that was sort of step one in what ended up getting us onto Kubernetes. Not quite related, but somewhat related. Then, after we'd lifted and shifted our uh, products that were running on-demand onto AWS, we then moved on. To, um, we had a few different teams around Atlassian that were working on Kubernetes just for their own workloads because it had sort of, I think it was 1.1, 1.2 version at the time. And then uh, one of our architects came out and he said, well, if we've got three, three different teams around the company working on Kubernetes, why don't we try and spin up one team, keep the, keep the knowledge localized, have better knowledge, uh, better iteration, and sort of have a building block of infrastructure that people can leverage. Uh, so they spun up this team uh, uh, for about six months, and it was pretty successful. And then after that, I joined the team. Um, and the first workloads we wanted to put on were build engineering workloads because that, like, it, it seemed like a low-hanging fruit. It was not going to affect um, any any external customers negatively or anything if we if we failed, um, and we succeeded pretty well. I'd forgotten about bamboo actually. I always forget that's a tool you have as well, or still have, I guess. 
I'm not really sure what the situation is. <laughs> what? Well, that's, that would be the next question is, do you, do you use bamboo as part of this workflow or yes. just... Okay. Yeah. So our, um, internally, we use bamboo for our builds and uh, we also have the option now to use Bitbucket pipelines for our internal builds. Um, so that's been around for a while, um, but we're making it a lot more first class at the moment internally. But yeah, we're using... Um, so everything was running on bamboo and we managed to get all the bamboo workloads from running where they were onto our, our new cube solution and, and sort of it's been really good. It's given us a lot of cost savings and um, and the experience is pretty good. Sometimes I've forgotten what I've actually written. I also remember I wrote about uh, Bitbucket pipelines about two years ago as well. <laughs> so sometimes it's jogging my memory too. Um, I mean, traditionally, as far as I can glean from the applications and documentation, you've been mostly a Java application house, but more recently, a lot of other uh, languages too. Um, so do, are you still kind of mostly supporting a lot of monoliths or have you been switching out to a lot of microservices along the way as the kind of, I guess, the, the user demand on your applications has changed as well? And that, I guess, Kubernetes has possibly facilitated that change as well. Yeah, so we have, we're definitely still primarily a Java shop. All of the, the products, um, the big ones, are written in Java. Um, we definitely have a lot more Java developers than developers of any other primary language. Um, but we have moved to microservices. So with that lift and shift um, from on-prem, where we were just running monoliths uh, inside containers, one container per customer. Okay. Um, so that's why we needed so much capacity, because we've got these big JVMs in containers sort of spreading them out. Uh, we moved from that to the cloud, and in doing that, we we'd started decomposing into microservices. And right now, we're very much a microservice shop. Uh, we have a lot of different microservices making different parts of the, um, the experience, and they all sort of work together to, to get the final page rendered. Sort of thing. You mentioned there one container per customer, which I guess seems like a a a, a, uh, a logical way to divide things. But yeah, it does seem like a lot of workloads. Is that something you still do, or for certain customers, or no? Um, so that that was the entire design of our old system. So we had a system, the on uh, the old on-demand system running on our on-prem stuff. We called it Unicorn. Um, I think we've got a patent out for the exact design because it was sort of weird and cool at the time. Um, and it was basically, yeah, we, we were using OpenVZ containers, and we ran uh, one JVM per customer. Uh, with the products for that customer in it. And so we could, what we got out of that was we could actually just lift and shift the entire container with um, a little bit of tooling that we'd written and sort of move it around between instances, restart the products, and, and we could sort of manage exactly where things were living. So it was a very manageable system. It just wasn't very scalable because of the amount of resources it required, especially when you consider that not everyone is using their product all the time, and yep. yet we have all this stuff just yep. running there. Okay. Um, so I'm also, I'm guessing that... Um, as much as you want to divulge, a lot of this, these changes have probably made you more um, infrastructure efficient than in the past and probably saving some some costs there as well. Absolutely. That was that was a big driver for us to, to move um, everything into AWS because we, we definitely got cost savings um, and we're using our resources a lot better um, and sort of it enabled us to start tackling some other initiatives down the line that we probably couldn't have. We were basically at the end of the road with the, the old design. Atlassian is also one of these sort of strange companies where your enterprise 
a lot of enterprise heavy users um, who tend to be somewhat conservative with releases and things like that, but you're web first. You know, in theory, you could roll out updates whenever you like, but your customers probably don't want that a lot of the time. Or there are business reasons to not do that as well. So how do you manage those release cycles in that you now have this infrastructure that you can update regularly, but you probably have a lot of customers who don't necessarily want everything updated all the time as well? <laughs> um, I, I can't answer that question fully because I'm not in the teams that do the rollouts. But what I can say is that when when you're on cloud, um, you're locked into the latest version, basically. Okay. So you are going to get those updates, but we do everything that we can on our side to make sure that um, we're not going to screw the customer. I think it's probably changed a little. And um, I seem to remember it used to be more like big releases every now and then. But yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, like part of the journey to getting onto the microservice thing was that we had to be able to update fast. So towards the end of on-prem, we had these um, really cool uh, cycles of um, rolling releases where we would roll out across the globe so that we'd hit people in the time zones that they probably weren't using their instances. Um, Yeah. Um, You mentioned on-prem there. I'm I'm guessing you probably still have quite a few users who do want on-premise installations. Yeah, yes. and how do you And how do you support that with Kubernetes, if, if at all? Okay, yeah. Um, interesting question. So we we obviously make data center versions of our products, and we provide support to people who are running those. Uh, as of yet, we don't have a Kubernetes solution for that, um, but I believe it's something we may, we may end up looking into. And it, it seems to be something that a lot of people here are speaking about, having to support enterprise clients who usually in those cases have legacy applications they want part of their cloud or for data sovereignty reasons they want something in a very very particular place yes. <laughs> with a lot of customers who have specific requirements about things and those are the ones who are usually running data center yeah. um, I mean from our point of view having people on cloud is, is best for us but if there's reasons that they can't do that then obviously we want to accommodate that interestingly on that on that vein you mentioned a minute ago and I, this, I think this was an old uh, item that you only had data centers in the US but is that still the case or um, we, we don't really have like we still have a, a couple of points of presence but we don't really run any data center um, but with your AWS presence you can have European yeah, exactly. and stuff yeah. that was yeah. another big reason that we switched right because if we want to spin up in another region we can just ask for it from the cloud provider um, and I, I suppose where are you in this uh, rollout process right now is it still in the middle is it finished um Switching to Kubernetes. Oh, to Kubernetes, right. So, um, glad you asked. So, regarding Kubernetes, so we've got all of the uh, builds on there basically at the moment, um, and that's pretty solid. It's been working well for a while. I'm the, I've been on the Kubernetes team now for about two and a half, uh, two two years, and uh, Kubernetes at last team was about two and a half. As I said, there was that six month spin up period, um, and in that time, we've got yeah, we've we've made sort of the Bitbucket pipelines experience um, really good for the team there, so they're able to develop with a lot more velocity now that they don't have to worry about any sysadmin stuff by taking the the management of the infra away from them. Um, We've got our builds working really well. And so we're turning our sites to running services as the next step. Um, So what we're going to do is try to get our microservices eventually running on Kube. So we're going to get the compute running on Kube. Um, and hopefully get some kind of service mesh set up in that to, to make uh, tra- you know give a real big incentive for our developers to transition over. What are you at KubeCon to 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 learn to promote to to network? What are you at KubeCon for? Uh, definitely at KubeCon to learn. That's probably primary reason number one. Um, 
the, the space for Kubernetes moves so fast um, that we really need to keep up with it. Um, and a lot of the time, KubeCons are just great for meeting people from other companies who are having similar problems, who solve things in interesting ways. We can share the ways that we've solved problems. So, um, for example, we made a piece of software called Escalator uh, that runs on, on top of Kubernetes. Um, and that was because we found that when we were migrating our build-end workloads, we had uh, problems with the original cluster autoscaler because the original cluster autoscaler it is uh, it works based on pending pods in the system. So if I schedule, say, five pods, um, three of them get homed and two of them are pending, this, the, the cluster autoscaler will see that there's not room for those two pods and add another node. But that's too slow if people want their builds to start immediately. Um, and so to fix that, um, we had a bit of a talk with the cluster autoscaler people, but the problem turned out to be quite a bit more... Um, difficult, in-depth, and philosophical um, towards the actual overall design of Cluster Autoscaler than they wanted to accommodate in that project. So we went off and we built a thing called Escalator. Um, and that's been working really well for us. So we open-sourced that. Um, I think AWS has linked to that in the docs for EKS now, um, if you want to do batch workloads. So it's really quite mature now. And what, what Escalator does is it will leave Slack capacity in the system. Um, you can configure exactly how much with a, a bunch of different knobs and config. And so it has that much Slack capacity to absorb sort of mini spikes um, in, in your job workflow. If there's a big spike, it will still obviously take a little bit of time to scale up. But the cool part about Escalator is it will scale down fairly aggressively depending on how you tune that Slack space. So you can save a lot of money if you have a, a workload that's going to spike because Cluster Autoscaler is fairly conservative with removing nodes um, because it's, based, it's sort of meant for a service-based workload where you kind of have a static-ish amount of services running in the cluster. So yeah, with, with Escalator, you'll scale down really fast um, and, and be able to save that money if you just getting a, a large spike in batch jobs. That's actually going to be my next question. Um, as through this experience, what have you contributed back to the to the the community? Uh, that's one thing. Anything else? Um, there's a few things uh, in the works that we'd like to contribute. So we, we open sourced a tool that we made very early on called Cube Token, okay. um, and that was a way to authenticate to clusters. That was before a whole bunch of other people came along and did you know OAuth integrations and you know Spiffy and and all that sort of um, stuff. So that was uh, sort of early on. It's not particularly relevant right now, but um, we have a whole bunch of things that we would like to open source, a whole bunch of tools. Um, so for example, internally, we have a thing called uh, Cyclops, uh, and that uh, is the cycle operator for nodes. So we wrote um, an operator, which you could give it um, a custom resource definition, and it will uh, take that, know about a node group, and know you can tell it, you know, I want to cycle this node group uh, with this concurrency, um, and whether you want to preserve the jobs on there, if they're jobs that can't be interrupted or not and it'll just go off and cycle those. And that's really important for us because we run a lot of different clusters, running a lot of different nodes, and if a CVE comes out that we need to patch really quickly, then you know that's the simplest way for us to just cycle it. So, so stuff like that we have internally, and we, we would love to be able to open source that. So we're, we're working towards sort of being more uh, free on the open sourcing. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there, is there or have there been any particular... Um, topics or talks at the KubeCon so far that have been very relevant or of interest to you and the team? 
Um, I've kind of got my ear out for a lot of service mesh stuff at the moment because yeah, that's about that yeah. <laughs> every day there's a lot of sessions on service mesh so I'm just attending uh, a whole bunch of those unless there's something else that interests me a bit more in that particular slot um, that's important for us because we're moving towards offering service mesh um, because you know as, as I said earlier we're running a lot of different microservices now and so if we can get the power of mesh to all of those microservice developers we're going to get a, a lot of big wins because we'll get a lot of extra metrics so we'll be able to see you know the whole state of the system a lot better um, we'll get some routing rules um, it'll just be a lot better experience for our developers um, so definitely interested in the service mesh side of things um, multi-cluster still rather uh, interesting for me because like I said we run a lot of clusters we've got over 10 I think um, the individual cube clusters that we're managing um, so we have a bunch of tooling around being able to build and deploy to those together but um, anything about multi-cluster still very interesting because it could simplify or, or change the way we do things You've mentioned so far a lot of the advantages it brings to the internal developers. Um, I guess some of these may seem fairly obvious, but what have been some of the advantages to to end users as far as you know as well? And have there been any disadvantages or problems to, to changing the way you run things? Right, so um, we haven't got the service. We haven't got many services running on top of Kubernetes uh, yet. Yeah, yeah. So when we lifted and shifted and moved to AWS, what happened was we um, we have an old pass uh, that's been around a little bit longer than Kubernetes called Micros, and so when we moved from the monoliths to the microservices, we moved everything into this V1 pass. So the V1 pass runs on raw AWS instances. It's sort of, it's a hand-rolled um, management system for AWS resources. So it'll set up uh, your instance replicas, which are each running on an individual EC2 instance, and then there's an ELB fronting all of that. Um, what the goal is next, now that we've got all the builds running on top of Kubernetes, is to get some of those services migrated across. Because the old pass, you know, you're dealing with EC2 instances and VMs, the spin-up time, it's a lot longer than it is in Kube. Um, so we can get, you know, an order of magnitude better spin-up time on top of Kube. So that's one reason that we, like developers internally, would want to move on top of Kube. And I guess in the... So you don't have production builds on Kubernetes yet. It's 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 mostly for developers for, for testing. Yeah, yeah. the microservices that serve Confluence or Jira. And this is mostly, I guess, just it's. You don't want to take the risk right now. It's just a lot of work. Or... Thing. Um, like well, one of our Atlassian values is. Um, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the Atlassian values is don't don't fuck the customer, um, and and that's a big thing that we take on board here. Like if, if Kubernetes is a sort of emerging technology, we have to think a bit enterprisey yeah. here and and not make sure that we're not going to screw them over. Yeah. It's actually interesting. I have interviewed a few enterprises here. Um, and they're still at the, it's weird because Kubernetes feels like it's been around forever and everyone's using it, but it's only five years old. And to a lot of people, that's still too immature. <laughs> it's yeah, it's uh, it's quite it's quite old now. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I think two two final questions. One more specifically to this, which would be, what's next on your plans with Kubernetes? Yeah, sure. Um, okay, so one thing we're really working towards and excited about at the moment is Carter containers. Um, are you familiar with Carter containers? Yeah, so for us, because we run Bitbucket pipelines, um, security is a huge deal for us, right? Because we're running a whole bunch of customer workloads. Um, they can supply whatever code they want in their Docker files and um, YAML files that describe the build. So we're basically running completely untrusted 
trusted code for a whole bunch of customers. And we want to make sure that all those customers' data is as secure as possible. We want to make sure that our clusters are as secure as possible. So adding an extra layer of isolation there with Kata is something that we're really excited about. Um, we've been working on getting that um, going. Kata's still sort of early days, but we've been working pretty closely with the Kata uh, project, um, raising issues, uh, submitting a couple of pull requests or working with, with the Carter guys on some pull requests. Um, so hopefully we'll get that working at some point in the near future. So I guess my final question, which is a little uh, tangential. Um, actually, uh, one of the times I've been here, I was fortunate to be invited to the Atlassian dev camp or whatever it's called a couple of years ago um, and also speaking to you Alassian engineers always seem to be very very um, very um, good at explaining things very clearly actually <laughs> fairly fairly well uh, trained in explaining things very very clearly and very professionally um, well the ones I've met anyway maybe I've just been very lucky <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's quite quite likely um, but I- ignoring that <laughs> is, is there a particular kind of internal and also I mean like a lot of people seem to stay there quite some time so is there an internal culture to encourage engineers to, to sort of step up and, and be more than just good developers and actually kind of be more knowledgeable at what they do and good at explaining it and understanding you know why things are useful and etc have I just been lucky yeah. um, okay so internally we have uh, a very big blogging culture so we run a confluence instance uh, for our intranet basically and we uh, are encouraged to blog our findings or interesting things that we come across um, we have a real culture we have a thing internally called boot camps where uh, if there's some if someone sees a gap in the knowledge and, and wants to train people they can set up a boot camp session and people can sign up for that so there's a lot of um there's a lot of incentive and and initiatives to share knowledge between Atlassians uh so that might contribute to to why why you find things easy to explain uh easily explained yeah, yeah so, um, and, and regarding regarding people staying there a long time um, the company the values are good um, yeah. the, the culture is really nice they provide nice office spaces for us um, the, the founders have direct sort of lines of communication down through the company um, basically the company's a nice place to work for so people stay and the engineering force is also very very talented and clever and that was my interviews with Edith Levine Shiv Ramji and Matthew Whittington. I hope you enjoyed. Next week I'll be back to normal schedule with some links and an interview. I'm not 100% sure what interview that will be yet. I still have a little bit of a backlog to sift through and figure out which will fit nicely. And in the meantime, you can find previous episodes and show notes at christianchiller.com slash podcasts, accompanying newsletters at christianchiller.com slash newsletters. My events calendar is now coming to an end, so I have nowhere for you to to tell you where you can meet me over the next few weeks. I'm hopefully going to be in Oscon in July. I also need to book everything, so that might be the deciding factor, but I hope to be. So any US listeners. And you can also get in touch with me at Chris Chidge on Twitter or contact details on the website I've already mentioned twice before. First episodes of The Enthusiastic Amateur should be coming out soon. I'm just editing the second episode and about to record the third episode, and then I will start releasing. And a few other uh, bits of creative writing should be coming out soon too. Um, So until the next time, if you have been, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 